Sir Balper, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio, we last spoke to managing editor Dave Cameron on the fourth and final day of the winter meetings in Dallas, Texas. While the winter meetings are typically a great source of transactions, there have, uh, in fact, been quite a few interesting ones in the meantime. Chief among those is the news today, Monday, that the Milwaukee Brewers have signed Aramis Ramirez to a three-year contract. I asked Dave about that contract and also what effects it might have on the Milwaukee Brewers' roster construction. Last few days have also seen Tampa Bay pitching phenom Matt Moore sign an Evan Longoria-esque contract extension that'll keep him with the Rays uh, for potentially upwards of eight years. We look at both uh, Moore's and the Rays' incentives for signing this sort of deal. And what falls, we also consider briefly the Raphael Forcal signing by the St. Louis Cardinals, why Cameron's not necessarily optimistic about it. And finally, if you're wondering who Vincent Catracalla is, I won't tell you everything about him right now. However, I will tell you that he has the second most optimistic batting projection per zips of all Seattle Mariner hitters, which may in fact be the most prominent case of damning with faint praise. It's Fangraphs Audio with Dave Cameron. Right now. Uh, but with regard to the Ramirez thing, it yeah. looked like Rosenthal was reporting three years um, and somewhere in the vicinity of 34 to 37 million, which is right. actually like almost precisely what readers projected and what his wins projection for. 2012 would suggest. Right. You know, so it's so in terms of analyzing the transaction, you know, it's a it's a fair deal for both sides. It would appear at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think you say it's fair for the market. So, like, based on the fact that uh, Ramirez is essentially the only capable free agent third baseman this year, you might have even argued that uh, he he would get overpaid because he was the only option for teams looking for third baseman. Um, but I guess there weren't that many teams in the market for third base either, so it's a little bit of a, a trade-off where he was the only guy available, but it maybe wasn't the best year to be a free agent third baseman. So the Brewers at this point have a gaping hole at first base with the departure. Uh, at the, made even, you know, if it wasn't already uh, definite, it, it's probably we'd say it's even more definite now of uh, Prince Fielder. They have a third baseman in name in Casey McGee. They also have. Uh, a minor league hitter named Taylor Green, who was excellent last year at AAA Nashville, and now they have Aramis Ramirez. What, I mean, I, I think Jackie Moore is going to be writing this up, perhaps by the time this podcast is available. He already has written it up. But what do you foresee happening happening there on the uh, at third base for the Brewers, and how does it affect first base? Well, I think McGee is probably going to get traded. Uh, you know, he's arbitration eligible. He's coming off a pretty terrible season. Um, so he's slated to make probably in the range of $2 million for 2012. And I think, uh, with Matt Gamel or Gamel slated in to play first base, uh, McGee would be a part-time first baseman backup third baseman. And I don't know if the Brewers are going to want to spend a couple million dollars on a guy who's only going to get a couple hundred plate appearances. So my guess is they'll trade McGee to some of that team who might want to give McGee a little more playing time. And then they'll, uh, reallocate the, the money somewhere else or maybe to give it to Francisco Rodriguez. 
who uh, took them to the cleaners by accepting arbitration last week. And, you know, you know Green, I don't think, is thought of as a super great prospect. He lacks the power that teams generally look for from the corner position. So I think they would probably be okay with him uh, moving into a reserve role. I don't think they're going to look at him and say he's a guy who needs to play every day. Green, well, yeah, and I would actually, I'd probably hire on Green uh, than, than most people, and it sounds like definitely like you. Uh, I would be interested in seeing him being given something like that. I don't know if he's played much outfield, um, but he did have uh, a pretty excellent season at, at AAA Nashville, like I say, and he was coming off a couple years of injuries, so it's possible that what he did is something more like real than we might have expected. But you're right in the sense that he's not a tools guy. At this point, also, and I don't know if the Ramirez uh, signing is a response to this, but there's a good chance that Ryan Braun won't be with the team for the first third of the season. Uh, what? Right. How, how are they going to address that? Well, my guess is, uh, you know, the first 50 games, you, you need someone who can take that job, but then not, you know, throw a fit if they lose their starting job when Braun comes back. So you, you essentially need a fourth outfielder type who you don't hate to have in a lineup and then can move into a part-time role for the rest of the season. So you're not going to go out and get a starting outfielder type to replace with Braun uh, just to try and cover April and May. Um, so they're going to have to look into a guy who probably can play multiple positions, maybe can back up center field, that they just don't uh, mind giving more playing time to in the first part of the season than they would overall, and then can maybe move into some kind of reserve job share type of role. So um, I would expect that they'll target somebody who can play all three outfield spots, um, maybe more of a, a, a tweener type. I mean, I think a, an Angel Pagan would have been a, a perfect fit for that that role um, before he got traded to San Francisco. But someone like that where you're looking at a, uh, a, a overall a guy who should be a part-time player, but you can give regular playing time to for the first 50 games. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, I think, on Twitter that uh, that McGee might be a good candidate to go to the Mariners. They, they have some uh, leftover outfield talent, don't they? I mean, doesn't Casper Wells a person who plays for them? He does. I don't. I don't think the Mariners would be all that interested in giving up Casper Wells, considering they gave Doug Fister to get Wells and another package of prospects. And uh, Fister obviously did pretty well for Detroit down the stretch. So the only way to salvage that trade is for Casper Wells to turn out pretty good. The Mariners essentially have a really large pile of players who have some ability, but you might not want to hand regular jobs to. So it looks like right now left field is some kind of job share between Mike Carp and Casper Wells. Well, unfortunately for teams who would want to get either of those players, the Mariners don't have very many hitters who can hit, and those two project as two of their better hitters. So I, I don't know that I see the Mariners moving either of those guys. But, you know, if the Brewers wanted to make a, a flyer on a guy like a Trayvon Robinson or a Michael Saunders or a Carlos Baguero, uh, I think the Mariners could probably be talked out of those guys. I also think that those guys are all worse than what the Brewers could do if they looked to another organization. Uh, and then you mentioned, we mentioned first base, obviously, there's a vacuum there with the departure of Prince Fielder. Matt Gamble, is he, is he essentially going to be starting the season at this point? I mean, I think right now, when you look at the roster, you have to assume Gamble's probably the starting first baseman. I don't think they wanted to go into the year with um, Gamble as a, a full-time player, but uh, Francisco Rodriguez accepting arbitration screwed up some of their plans. I don't think they were originally planning on allocating $13 million to a setup guy. Um, and so I don't know that they're going to have the cash to go out and get a uh, Carlos Pena or somebody who could displace Gamble at first base now unless they can move Rodriguez, um, but I think they probably have to eat some money to do it. So uh, my guess is because of the financial constraints that the Rodriguez acceptance put them under, 
Uh, they're probably stuck with Gamble, and you know maybe they'll find a uh, right-handed job share guy. Maybe they'll keep McGee in that role. Uh, but my guess is Campbell's going to start the year as primarily the first baseman, and they'll they'll see if he can sink or swim. Oh yeah, and I meant to ask you, uh, looking over the Zips projections for the Mariners, I noticed that the second most highly rated player is a third base quote unquote prospect named Vincent yep. Catracala. Yeah, that's correct. Do you know that person? I do. Well, not personally. I've never had him over for dinner, but I am aware of Vincent Catricola or Vinny Catricola as he's, he goes by his existence. He had a monster year in Double A. He was a seventh or eighth round pick a few years ago, and has hit well throughout the minors. Um, you know, he's a he's one of those guys who's not super toolsy, but there are no flaws in his game. Really, he doesn't strike out too terribly much. Uh, he walks some. He's got some power. His defense is bad, and most people project him as a left fielder or maybe a first baseman. And it's an open question whether he's going to hit enough to play left field or first base, especially as a right-handed hitter. Um, but, I, you know, I think that there's some overall skills there, and uh, I think the Mariners are probably going to see Catricola start the year in AAA, and maybe they'll, the hope is that he can hit himself into a job in the second half. Yeah, Vincent Catricola, I will say, again, the second most highly rated player per zips in the Mariners organization. Well, it was the second best hitter. So I think, you know, sorting right. by OPS plus, once you factor defense into account, then he's going to fall, fall behind guys like Casper Wells, who, you know, Wells is maybe slightly less um, uh, refined offensively, um, but there's similar power there. And Wells can actually play the outfield well, can actually even play center field. Um, obviously, like a guy like Brandon Ryan's going to rate behind Catricola as a hitter, but is a better player because he can play shortstop. Um, so I think, you know, Catricola is an interesting guy, but. Um, I, I wouldn't be super excited about his future at this point. Okay, uh, in continuing this strain of going back and forth between the Mariners and the Brewers, riveting stuff for our listening audience, no doubt. Uh, Alex Gonzalez, we didn't talk about him last week. He was sort of a post-winter meeting signing. He's not Unieski Betancourt. True, and in that sense, uh, at least he's a moderate upgrade, and that he's not, you know, out and out lazy. Um, but I, I do think that Alex Gonzalez is maybe the uh, the cheap alternative to Betancourt and not necessarily a huge upgrade. I mean, Betancourt's bad. Gonzalez is slightly less bad. Uh, I think the Brewers were caught in a situation where they decided they didn't want to spend on um, Jose Reyes and doesn't sound like Jimmy Rollins had much of an interest in going to Milwaukee. So at that point, they were left with a lot of uh, untenable choices, and so they took the guy who was not overly expensive and didn't require long-term commitment, and then they'll keep hunting for a shortstop of the future going forward. Yeah, I didn't see the final terms, but I I think he was only signed for $2.5 million for the Braves last year, right? Yeah, it was pretty cheap. I think he got, what, $1.75 million from the Brewers with a team option for a second year or something. It was not an overly expensive contract, um, which, considering Alex Gonzalez's skill set, is about, is about right. This is not a guy you should be giving an expensive contract to. Right, but he has about... Uni Betancourt's offensive game, but at least league average defense at short. Is that a correct assessment? It's similar. I mean, Gonzalez doesn't walk. He has a little bit of power, um, and he's a little bit better defensively, but he's also getting older. So, I mean, I think, you know, defense is one of those things that peaks early, and, you know, guys in their mid-30s generally aren't good defensive shortstops. So Gonzalez has been able to maintain some defensive value, but it's an open question of how long that's going to last. And, um, you know, I think when you're you're betting on a guy in his mid-30s being – able to make up for a 270 on base percentage with his glove, that, that's a bit of a tough bet. Okay. Uh, also, I guess uh, Friday this 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 happened. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, I, 
they they locked up Matt Moore for a while. It looks like Matt Moore might have gotten Andrew Friedman. Um, uh, yeah, I think I said he got Evan Longoria. But, uh, right, yeah, right. It's a similar idea. It's a similar uh, structure um, as the as that crazy Evan Longoria contract. I guess uh, what were the – there's like three different club options in there somewhere. What, what are the terms and what does it mean uh, for Matt Moore and the Rays? So basically, the Rays gave Matt Moore 14 million guaranteed for the next five years, and then they got club options on his final arbitration year and what would be his two first free agent years. So he gets 14 million guaranteed, and then if he pitches really well and stays really healthy, and the team picks up all the options, it could turn into an eight-year, 40-year million dollar contract. So, um, you know, it's not that Moore is getting totally shafted here. 40 million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. But I think that it's pretty obvious that if Matt Moore stays healthy and pitches for eight years in the major leagues, he would have gotten a lot more than $40 million. So he traded significant long-term cost potential for transferring risk to the Rays. And as a young pitcher, there's something to be said for getting rid of the risk of blowing out your arm early in your career and never making anything of yourself. Um, Moore's only thrown 19 innings in the major leagues, including his time in the playoffs. So I don't think he can look at himself and say, I'm clearly going to you know, be an ace and pitch 200 innings the next couple of years and make Clayton Kershaw money or make Kim Lincecum money uh, to the point where this wouldn't make sense for him. And I think if you're a young pitcher, there's something to be said for taking the first, you know, stab at 10, 15 million, the kind of money that will set you for the rest of your life and set your kids for the rest of their lives and make you financially comfortable. But I think there's no question that, uh, like Longoria, Moore gave up potentially 100 to $150 million in this deal. Yeah, is there a word for that? Um, in, in economics where it, we're dealing with a, a real human element here, right? Because the difference between $14 million and the amount that Matt Moore has made to date, which is, you know, still decent, I'm sure, but, you know, a couple hundred thousand, that's a much more significant gap in terms of lifestyle, like effects on a, a lifestyle than the gap between, you know, 14 and 40 million or 14 and 100 million. Yeah, I think that in economics you would refer to this as diminishing returns in the sense that the future value of the dollars that he could earn above and beyond go down with each incremental dollar. So that first dollar is worth, you know, a significant amount to him, but that, you know, 103rd million, not, not, a, not worth a million dollars to Matt Moore. That's going to enable him to buy a seventh boat or, you know, leave, uh, you know, some extra large, uh, stocking stuffer for his, great-great-grandchild in 70 years. I mean, like, there's uh, a point at which the future money just doesn't become nearly as important as the present money. And so in terms of diminishing returns, I think we can say that there's clearly a line where that first million is really important uh, to a player, maybe even that first five to ten million. And then beyond that, it just gets into how comfortable of a lifestyle are you going to be able to live um, rather than, you know, will I need to go get another job when I'm done playing baseball? Right. This is essentially guaranteeing that he'll send his kids to college without in, without thinking about it, really. Yeah, I mean, for Matt Moore, this essentially means that if he pulls a mark prior and blows out his arm next year and never pitches again, he doesn't have to think about an alternate career path. I mean, he's guaranteed $14 million. Even once you take out taxes and his agent fees, uh, you know, he's bringing in 6 or $7 million that he can now live off the interest in that. Uh, he can invest that in business, and there's a lot of things he could do to – live comfortably without ever having to consider going back to college and getting 
a career as a, an analyst or some kind of, you know, um, we've seen a lot of these guys who wash out of baseball early. And, you know, at age 40 or 50, they're truck drivers or they're doing something else. And it's kind of a little bit of a sad story. Matt Moore will now never be that sad story. He'll be able to live a reasonably normal life uh, for the rest of his life, no matter what happens in baseball going forward. Uh, now, as we've noted, this is uh, similar in terms and and sort of scope to the Evan Longoria deal that uh, the Rays signed a couple years ago now. Where and I know the last couple of years, Evan Longoria's deal has been right at the top of your trade value series. Where will this put Matt Moore uh, on the same series? I mean, he's going to be near the top. There's no doubt about it. I think it will depend somewhat on how he pitches the first half of 2012. If he is as good as he was uh, in the playoffs last year, he's going to challenge Longoria for that top spot, and I would be shocked if he wasn't in the top five. But I think there's also the reality that he is a pitcher. And so, um, you know, a few years ago, obviously, Mark Pryor would have looked like the number one trade chip in baseball. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of these young arms come up, be fantastic, and then get worse or regress or get injured. And so, you know, I think with pitchers, there's an open question of whether they should be the one that you're absolutely building around. And, you know, I guess if you ask the question, like, are the Rays better off with Evan Longoria at his deal or Matt Moore at his deal, I think that the answer right now is probably still Longoria in that he's so much lower risk. I mean, you know, there's um, similar upside, similar performance levels, um, but you just don't have the chance of Longoria going out and blowing out his arm every day he plays. And I think that that kind of um, high-level, low-risk player is, is still extremely valuable where Moore presents quite a bit more risk than Longoria does. In terms of projecting Matt Moore as a pitcher, uh, it reminded me of a post that um, Mitchell Lickman, um, wrote recently at the Inside the Book blog, and I'm trying to think exactly what he was saying, but it was something to the effect that whenever you're projecting a pitcher, you should you should project him to pitch worse than he did the uh, the previous year. Yeah. Can so ex- MGL's work on pitcher aging curves, uh, and this is not something that's been totally set in stone, but in the, in the type of research he's done, the way he's aged pitchers have generally been to uh, find that they're in decline at all times. So even if you're great at 21, uh, his research has shown that you're ex- you should be expected to be a little less great at age 22. In other words, the loss of stuff or the um, impact of innings piling up on a pitcher and having to adjust his repertoire for the fact that he might not be able to throw as hard as he did when he was younger will outstrip the game made from experience or learning how to pitch or the things that we expect that a pitcher will get better at over time. Other people have come to slightly different conclusions, but there's no question that the pitcher aging curve is at best flat, and it's not the um, bell curve that we see with hitters where you continually improve until you're 27 or 28, and then you get worse with pitchers. If you're really good at a young age like Matt Moore is, that might be as good as you're ever going to be. Well, right, and when we see improvement with pitchers, it tends to be in larger increments, right? It, because they learn a new pitch or or they learn something about their rotation, or sorry, their like their windup or whatever, their release point, where they get a a larger spike in improvement as opposed to just that like smaller incremental gain. Yeah, I think what we see with pitchers is real improvement generally comes from. Uh, you know, adding a new pitch, like quickly, you know, he added a cutter and then all of a sudden he had amazing command and uh, he went from a four starter into an ace. And so I think what we see is um, 
with pitching, it's easier to make a dramatic shift in your skill set, where with a hitter, you're generally not going to be just become fast overnight, or you're not going to uh, add pull power over one winner. I mean, these are things that you generally have to work at and get marginal incremental gains. With pitchers, you can do more along the lines of total skill set overhaul, um, but it was hard to look at Matt Moore and see what he could overhaul. I mean, he already throws 97. <laughs> you know, he's already got a really good changeup. Uh, you know, there's not an area where you can say, well, if Matt Moore just does this thing, he can become incredible. He's already pretty close to uh, a highly talented pitcher with very few flaws. And so you might say his command could improve a little bit here or there, or maybe his breaking ball will get a little bit better. Um, but those things could easily be offset by a loss of velocity, which is something we see from young pitchers. You, so you see Moore having a pretty good season in 2012? I mean, I think, you know, anytime you have a lefty who throws 97 with command, the odds are pretty good he's going to be good. I mean, you don't have to uh, be a rocket scientist to think that that package is going to work in the major leagues. Um, you know, I think the, the question of how well he'll hold up over a full major league season is still in question. I mean, there's guys who can look amazing, uh, you know, for 50 to 100 innings before they hit a wall, and, uh, you know, their velocity goes down in the second half. We don't know that Morris going to be able to pitch 200 innings in the big leagues yet. We haven't seen that. Um, he probably can, but we don't know for sure. So um, there's definitely risk attached, but I think if you're betting on Matt Moore, you, you should probably bet on him to be pretty good next year. Uh, we'll do this, uh, one more deal. Uh, Raphael Fercal signed a deal over the weekend, I guess, with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I think it's uh, two years, $14 million. Provided he stays healthy, um, it shouldn't be hard for him to be worth his contract. Of course, staying healthy has been a, a problem for Fercal. Um, especially in recent years, you, you like that deal for the Cardinals, and you know, I guess uh, it's what he's an alternative to some combination of Ryan Terrio and uh, Tyler Green. Yeah, I mean, Farquhar is a tough guy to project. I put this out on Twitter the other day, but he's perhaps the most inconsistent player in the game. The only competition is probably Vernon Wells or maybe Aubrey Huff. But if you look at his WRC plus by year, he goes from fantastic to bad and alternates every year for the last five or six years. Um, some of that is health, some of that is Babbitt swings. I think his Babbitt went from 338 to 240 over the last year. Uh, you know, so maybe it's not total changes in skill set, but for Call's not a guy that you can just pencil in and say, he's shown that he's going to do this year after year. He's getting older, he's battled injury problems. I think there's a lot of downside with Recall, and if I'm the Cardinals and I now all of a sudden have 20 or 25 million that I was going to give Albert Pools to spend on other players, I think I might have aggressively pursued a shortstop like Jimmy Rollins who I think is a significant upgrade over, over Raphael Fakal. I think there's a lot less questions with Rollins. Um, you know, he's healthier, he's just better overall. He does more things than Fakal does. So uh, I think this is maybe a little bit of a, a safe move on the Cardinals' place. And, you know, maybe they're going to spend the rest of that money and go get Carlos Beltran, and then I'll say, you know, well done. I think Beltran's going to be a really good value signing for whoever signs him. But if the Cardinals don't go get a guy like Beltran or, you know, they spend the rest of their money just on moderate moves, I would say that they probably could have used a, sig- a more significant upgrade at shortstop than for call. All right, Dave Cameron, we're going to uh, let you go, we'll let you do whatever it is you do. Re- really have no idea. Um, we're really not going to discuss the Will Rhymes uh, designation for assignment because that, that seems like a pretty big deal. That's big That's big on your list? Yeah, I mean, you know, Will Rhymes. Like, how do you not talk about Will Rhymes? Well, there was the uh, – we could also discuss the Felix P.A. signing by the Cleveland Indians if you want to go there. That's very true. There's some big moves happening uh, in, uh, that we didn't cover. I think maybe we'll uh, have to do another podcast for Will Rhymes and Felix PA. Yeah, yeah, uh, Rhymes. Uh, and if we could do it in meter, too. We could do it in uh, big pentameter, maybe. Yeah, I think this would be a great podcast to have Jeff Sullivan on for. 
Uh, yeah, you know, we haven't had Jeff on, um, mostly because he, he's frequently insolent. If I want to bring that presence on to it, uh, but um, but yeah, but yeah, Jeff's just always can. Would you would you be upset if I discussed Mariners baseball with Jeff on the podcast? Uh, I would not, as long as you gave it the caveat that uh, everything he said he stole from me. No, yeah, 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 yeah. And if he wouldn't, yeah, right. And if he wouldn't expressly say that, then then I would for him. Right. I mean, you know, Jeff is essentially my funnier thief, so. Uh, he just takes what I say and, and adds some humor to it. So as long as people understand that's where he's coming from, then have at it. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. Uh, and, and again, thanks for joining us today, Dave Cameron. All right, thanks, Rob. Cool. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.